Great. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here on this beautiful day. Um, in two Sundays' time, we're at Remembrance Sunday, it's come around quick, hasn't it? So we're going to spend a bit of time in two weeks reflecting on the centenary of the end of the First World War. Um, but it gives us two weeks, this, this Sunday and next Sunday, to spend a bit of time thinking about a couple of areas of the life of the church, which I think will really help us as we continue to grow. Uh, and that is the issue of covenant and confession. If you could just put up the first slide, please, that would be great. These two issues here. Um, these are sort of uh, subjects which we've reflected on a little bit in the recently published um, membership booklets, and we want to spend a bit of time just to uh, think a bit more deeply about covenant and confession. And when you came in, you should have been given a copy of um, a church covenant. If you haven't got one in your hand, do just raise a hand, and one of the stewards will whiz round um, and make sure you have one in your hand. Um, we're going to refer to this later on. This is an unusual talk in that there's going to be, uh, most of this morning is going to be laying the context, and we're not going to come to this till near the end. Um, so please just um, grab it and stick it under your chair so it's not a distraction, but we will come back to it. Um, but I'd love us to refer to this um, later on as we um, continue in this little series. Do keep a hand up if you haven't got one yet. There's a few coming over. Um, part of the reason we, we wanted to rewrite the membership booklet uh, recently was an acknowledgement that we're growing as a church and we wanted to better integrate those who are newer to the church family, helping to pe- people to understand um, what we believe and why we believe it and how that impacts the way that we organize ourselves as a church. Um, the membership booklet wasn't something completely new. It was an update of the old handbook that was last published in 1997. So we've taken what was old and we've just tried to refresh it but with a kind of new re-emphasis on what it looks like to be committed to each other. And the idea of Romans chapter 12 of being one body, a church family, as Nathan was helping us understand earlier, um, but made up of different parts, and we want to work together to support and love and encourage each other. Uh, Membership means very different things in different churches. Some churches, membership means um, simply being on the electoral roll. In other churches, it means a lot more. But we want to sort of help redeem what we think is a biblical attitude towards it. I would just say that some people perhaps will be thinking in their heart, but if I sort of become a member of the church, is that not me just having to commit to more stuff? And we want to help people to see it's not about committing to more stuff. It's more about reorientating our priorities, if we're followers of Jesus, around our growth as Christians. Uh, And the more that we reorientate our whole life around wanting to grow as a Christian, the more these sort of things become a joy to us, not a burden. If if we don't want to reorientate our whole life around growing as a Christian, then every new idea that a church might have will just feel like another burden on top of every other burden. But if we can see that God's ultimate aim for our lives is that we grow to know him better, then anything that's going to help us to grow as followers of Christ and anything that will help us to help other people to grow... That must be a good thing. So we're going to think this week and next week about covenant and confession. Covenant really focusing today on behavior, a kind of commitment to behaviors that will help us to love each other better. And next week we're going to consider um, confession, really a set of beliefs that will help us to stay committed to gospel truth. And I think these will be hopefully, I pray, really helpful. Um, Before we get there, though, I want to spend a bit of time trying to sort of diagnose the culture in which we live. Um, This is my perception um, based on conversations and observations and things I've read, and I'd be interested to know whether you would share these convictions. But a few convictions about our culture, because until we understand and actually reflect on where we're at as a culture, um, how we might respond to that as a church um, is sort of getting ahead of ourselves. Let me give you a few suggested things that are really positive about our culture at the moment. 
Um, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that our culture won't be satisfied and doesn't want gimmicks. People want stuff that is genuine. Um, There's lots of benefits of social media, but one of the downsides of it is a lot of relationships have become quite superficial. And our culture, I think, is screaming out for something that's genuine and robust, not just sort of gimmicks. They want something that's genuine. And I believe that Jesus Christ can offer us something that's more genuine than anything else. And so what our culture is longing for, I believe he can answer. Another observation is that the length of our working day is, generally speaking, getting longer, which means that for most people in this room, we would say we are time poor. And that's increasingly isolating people from another. And so even though people perhaps wouldn't articulate it like this, I believe that lots of people in our culture are crying out for a sense of community and belonging. Again, that's exactly what Jesus Christ and the church can offer. And third little positive thing is I think often as Christians we can feel a bit deflated and defeatist. We can kind of say, well, we're growing up or living in a very kind of secular culture. People aren't interested. But my observation as I've tried to become bolder in speaking of my faith with others is actually people are more open to talking than we might like to think. We just have to learn to ask the right questions and to do it in a manner that fosters a healthy relationship and conversation. But the point is, with all these things, our culture, I think, is asking for something that ultimately Jesus Christ can give. But perhaps most people don't recognize that. And so there's a lot that's to be said for uh, where we stand in our culture today. But let me try and observe a few negative things about our culture as well. I wonder if you would agree with some of these. Uh, In many ways, I think this is something particularly true of the millennial generation. Uh, We're a culture that is obsessed with novelty always kind of waiting and looking for a better offer. Perhaps never really satisfied. It's interesting that increasingly so many good things compete for perhaps the best thing, which is to really prioritize being at church regularly, Sunday by Sunday. Lots of good things compete for that time, but it's very, very easy to allow good things to become the enemy of the best thing. And it's very, very hard to keep going as a Christian. It's certainly near impossible to keep growing as a Christian if we're not together regularly and sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. I also think our culture is very obsessed with rights, standing on our rights. And so any kind of conversation about discipline or obedience is increasingly frowned upon. It's the idea that discipline and obedience is kind of restrictive and controlling. Uh, Particularly Christian discipline might be seen as heavy-handed and of course it can be and it mustn't never ever be but that's sometimes the way things go and it's not right so we're a culture that's obsessed with novelty we're a culture that's obsessed with rights think about the church as well and here i'm not talking specifically about this church and talking of life can lack distinctiveness one of the things that struck me having reread a bit of acts this week is in acts chapter 11 when christians are first called christians in antioch The reason for it is that their life was so revolving around Jesus Christ, they were utterly distinctive to the rest of the world. When people saw the way that they lived and the way that they loved each other and the surrounding culture, they called them Christians because their whole life revolved around Christ. And maybe the reason that the church sometimes lacks connection is because the church is sometimes guilty of um, preaching a slightly anemic gospel. This idea that, and rightly so, we're so focused on the cross of Christ, and rightly so, we never ever move on from the cross of Christ, but so focused on the cross of Christ, 
and what Christ has done and what it means to come into a relationship with Christ that we don't stress equally the resurrection of Christ. A life of joy. A life keeping in step with the Spirit of God. And both are essential. The gospel's not the cross. The gospel's not the resurrection. It's both. I think sometimes churches, and we can be guilty of this, I'm sure, of being slightly anemic in the way that we present Christ in all his fullness. And we need to think about that. And secondly, I think, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, sometimes we just feel very defensive and deflated as Christians because we feel that we perhaps need to be apologetic because our culture's running this way so quickly and we're trying to run this way. And so we can be very apologetic of what we believe. And yet, actually, if you think about it, do we not, as Christians, have a better worldview to offer a broken world? A few sort of negative observations of our culture. And then here are a few little observations, perhaps, of us as Christians. And I wonder whether this is true for you or not. I think we need to be aware, and I think we sometimes lack awareness, of how subtle the influence of our culture around us can be on the way that we think. Um, truth is being undermined all the time in our culture. And what's champion these days in this culture is reason. What makes sense to me? The problem is, though, our reason is deeply flawed, like the rest of us. And so we don't always think as clearly as we like to think we think. So we just need to be aware of that. Um, Perhaps as Christians, sometimes we could be guilty of nominalism or being a bit lukewarm. It's interesting, isn't it, when Jesus, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he doesn't say, go and make Christians. He says, go and make disciples. And why is that interesting? It's interesting because to become a Christian costs us, but to be a disciple of Christ costs a lot more. And I think sometimes we can be so focused on all that I need to do in response to the gospel to come to Christ. Jesus is my saviour, is something I love, but Jesus is my Lord One whom I fear, who I'll be obedient to, is something perhaps we conveniently ignore at times. And all of this leads to what some people have called a kind of popular theology, where as a culture often we we want to think of our faith in a very privatised way. It's me and God. And it's not really appropriate for anybody to speak any sort of truth into my life. It's never appropriate to be rebuked or challenged. And perhaps part of the reason for that is that we've become hypersensitive to being judgmental. We should never be judgmental. That's not a good thing. But because of that, sometimes we're so sensitive to not wanting to offend anyone that we actually never speak a challenging word to anybody. And we just let stuff go for fear of upsetting. Perhaps sometimes as Christians we can be a little bit proud or maybe a little bit touchy. And I think this is interesting because you read a passage like 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. What does Paul do? He says, church, it's not your job to judge outsiders, people who are not Christians, because they don't need your morality. They need Christ. But Christians, what are you called to do? To speak the truth in love, we are called to judge each other. Not in a pharisaical, judgmental way, but in a way where we hold each other accountable to our profession of faith. That's hugely countercultural. We don't like being challenged and we don't like giving challenge. But done in the context of love, done in the context of really wanting to see each other grow, it's a really healthy thing. I hope that doesn't sound overly negative. There's lots of positive things we could celebrate about our culture. Just a week or two ago, I was speaking at Spectrum, and we were celebrating together the gift of art and being creative. Just one of many things we could talk about on another day. 
But I wanted to try and sort of get under our skin a little bit to try and understand some of the influences our culture has on perhaps the way that we think and certainly the way that we might relate as a church. And so if your heart's feeling a little bit pricked, and mine is as well, I'm speaking to myself as much as to each of us, that's a good thing. And I hope that as we continue this morning, we can reflect on that. Now, please do just take up your copy of this um, church covenant, which I hope you now have a copy of. This is something we're going to talk about a little bit more in um, members' meetings coming up because it wants to be something that we own together. But just to say again, this is sort of a reworking of very similar words in the 1997 um, handbook that we had, 1997 handbook we had as a church. It's incorporating a lot of the kingdom values from Matthew 18 to 20 that Neil's just been preaching on. And it also incorporates the values that we stand on as a church. But what I'd love you to do is just to take a few moments and just to read that quietly yourself. And I'll give us a bit of space to reflect on it. I've just asked uh, Val to read through this covenant from where she's seated. And I'm just going to make a few little comments uh, about each of the little phrases in it, just to help us to understand it a little bit more and consider it. Um, So Val, if you could please just start with the first one. As a member of this church, with God's enabling... I will seek to fulfill my responsibilities as summarized in this covenant. I think the key phrase in that little um, sentence there is, with God's enabling. What we're saying is that we all need God's help and God's grace to be a church that truly loves other people and loves each other. Uh, This isn't designed to be a kind of very high bar that's set, that causes us to constantly feel that we've fallen short and beat ourselves up or worse still beat other people up when they fail to fulfill this standard it's not about that at all it's more about an acknowledgement as an individual that i need to take greater responsibility for my own growth as a christian but also as a church family i need to take responsibility for the growth of those around me and so actually with by god's grace that's something we can do and something that is really healthy if we just carry on thank you I will endeavour to live a life consistent with faith in God and obedience to his word, the Bible. Of course, to live a life consistent with faith in God and obedience to his word, the Bible, requires the spirit of God, right? None of us can do this ourselves. We need to keep in step with the spirit of God. We need to be daily filled with the spirit of God that he might direct and lead us. And we do need to be a church, and we're going to think a bit about this next week with um, the idea of confession, confessing faith together, that holds to the authority of Scripture, particularly in a culture where reason is increasingly trumping what God has said. We need to be a culture, a church that will stand. Because if the Bible is not our ultimate authority, and I'll give you some frightening statistics next week of what many Christians in this country are now saying, let alone a culture around us about the Bible, but I'll save that for next week. If the Bible isn't our ultimate authority, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what is? And it would be pretty dangerous if we start thinking that we are. So we need to endeavour to be consistent with all that God has said, because God's word is written for our good and our flourishing, not to restrict us, but for our good and our flourishing. Please, would you carry on? I will strive to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that would be God's ultimate aim for all of us? God's less interested in what we do, and yet we live in a culture that's obsessed with what we do, and our identity comes from what we do. God's ultimate aim for us all 
is that we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. So actually, whatever we do in our life, however we use the gifts and talents, the opportunities that we have, that's God's ultimate aim for us. That we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes when we take words like accountability and we feel that's quite invasive, I don't really want to be accountable to another Christian, we have to ask, well, is accountability, if it's done in a God-fearing, grace-filled way, is that going to help me to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ? It should be. So actually, accountability is a wonderful thing. I'll give you permission, and I hope you might give me permission. I'd give you permission to tell me if I ever exhibit characteristics in my life or behavior that you don't think honors God. Lovingly tell me. I want to hear. Because that's a good thing. And I hope that you would want me to lovingly tell you too. Not because we're there to judge each other, but because we love each other. And one of the ways we love each other is to be accountable to our profession of faith. And that's what the next set of phrases is all about. I will seek to love my fellow church members with the kind of love with which the Lord Jesus Christ loves us. I will do everything I can to encourage them in their Christian discipleship, praying for them and being as regular as possible in my attendance at the meetings of the church. I'll be patient with those I find difficult, gracious towards those with whom I disagree about secondary matters, and forgiving towards those who wrong me. So those sort of statements are are really talking about what it means to be a church that's committed to being a family. Now you think about your own family, not in church here, but your family back home. If there's not a commitment within that family to forgive and to keep loving and to bear with each other through the challenges as well as enjoying the joys, it's very hard to be a united family, right? We get that. It's no different in the church. And so there's actually a wonderful commitment there where I promise to forgive. It's interesting. When I've recognized in the cross of Christ that I've been forgiven the inexcusable, I have no right as a Christian to withhold forgiveness from anybody, however much they've hurt me. Because I recognize I, they can't have ever hurt me as much as I've hurt the God who made me. So actually these set of phrases are, are wonderful, wonderfully positive. Because what they're saying is, I will be a Christian. Which means I'll forgive and I'll keep forgiving and I'll keep sharing grace. As God's grace enables. And that's a wonderful thing. Because as soon as forgiveness is refused in a church, we know what happens. It creates bitterness. It creates division. It creates disunity. And that can't be healthy for any church Thank you, Val. I will do everything I can to help those with practical and material needs. Um, I rejoice when this is evidenced in this church, when you're a beneficiary of it or you see it evidenced in other people. It's a wonderful thing, and many people in this church are really, really good at this. But what this is 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 an expression of kind of mutual dependence on each other, that we won't live privatized lives where it's kind of me looking after myself, but actually it's us looking after each other. It's very interesting, isn't it? In the book of Acts, you read in chapter 2, in chapter 4, and elsewhere, little phrase, and there was no needy people among them. Very significant. If there's ever needy people among us as a church family, we're failing to be church, because actually all that we have is what God's given us to be used for each other. And one of the reasons the Christians were called Christians in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, is because they were so radical, not only in looking out for each other, but in giving money and blessing those who weren't in the church. And the watching world go, what are you doing? Why are you blessing us when we're persecuting you? That was such radical love. Such a radical concern for other people that people looked and go, they're different. 
I thank God every time this, this sort of generosity is exhibited here. And we need to keep encouraging it in each other. Thanks, Val. I will also do everything possible to foster our love and unity and to avoid anything which might disrupt our fellowship together, including gossip, grumbling and complaining about fellow believers. I will welcome rebuke with humility if others believe I am erring in my faith or conduct. It's very, very countercultural, this set of phrases, isn't it? Very countercultural. But if we become people who don't want to give and receive challenge and rebuke, we put ourselves in a place where it's really, really hard to grow as a Christian. So we've got to guard against being proud. We've got to guard against being touchy. Uh, There's a few people in this church who've rebuked me from time to time since I've been a pastor here, and they've done it in a really loving way. It's been really helpful. One or two have done it in a perhaps less loving way, and it's not been as helpful. But I can think, and looking around the room, and I won't embarrass anyone, a few people who've really helpfully, in a godly way, challenged me about something I've said or something I've failed to do that I should have done. And it's a really helpful thing to have done it. We need to have the humility to receive challenge as well as to give it. Thank you. I will contribute generously to the financial needs of the church and will work with my fellow church members for the fulfilment of the church's agreed vision. Uh, The little book that we put together, The Joy of Giving, Serving and Praying, sort of speaks into this. Of course, there's all sorts of areas of our life that we'll give, of our time and our energy and our money. It's not that it's all about the church, but it can't ever not be about the church, because that's one commitment we have as Christians. And really, this is an expression of giving our lives away for the sake of other people. And there's a great joy in lavish generosity in all its different forms. Thanks, Val. I will respect the church leaders. Pray for them in the responsibilities they carry and do everything I can to help and encourage them in their service, including their teaching from God's word. Um, One application for all of us and then a particular application for those um, preaching. Uh, We all need humility, don't we, to be teachable and to learn, all of us. And even those of us who preach other times are sitting under the preaching of someone else. We all need that humility. We all need to trust that the people who stand in the pulpit are God's gift to the church for that time to speak God's word to us. It's a wonderful responsibility, but it's a really big responsibility. And you only feel the weight of the responsibility when you do it. So please pray for those who preach. But for all of us, we need to sit under the teaching of the word of God and be obedient to it. And please pray for those of us who do preach. Pray that we would have humility. And as I said before, challenge us when we fail to exhibit that humility. Because as soon as pride gets in the way, it's a very, very dangerous place to be as a leader or in a position of responsibility. And then the last little phrase there. Thank you, Val. In my family, neighborhood and work situation, I will endeavor by the life I live and by what I say to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is a sort of a summary of why do we exist as a church? It's not to be a cozy club on a Sunday, but it's to be a lifeboat to a broken nation and community in which we live. Now, as you read that, and I know it will take more time to reflect on it, and we'll talk about it at some members' meetings coming up, I hope you see that that collective sort of set of promises or statements that perhaps we could incorporate as a church could be really helpful for us. Of course, there's things in there that will cause us to sort of say, ouch, and it will be a little bit tricky for us. 
But we might be wise just to go away and prayerfully consider whether these things might help us to really grow as Christians, because that's God's ultimate aim for all of us. And I really thank God that so much of what is in there is already happening in the church, and we can celebrate that and give thanks for it. But this is just a means, perhaps, of sharpening each other up to make sure that we all take a sense of responsibility uh, for each other. Now, just there's been a lot of sort of context, understanding our culture, a lot of context helping us understand something of this church covenant. As we come to a close, I'd love you, please, just to turn up Mark chapter 1. Val is going to read from verse 14 to verse 20 of Mark chapter 1. and just want to make a few closing comments before we finish. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Just going to focus in on those two little phrases in yellow on the screen. Um, I think the reason I've chosen this passage to sort of anchor all that we've been talking about in this issue of covenant is that covenant really is all about not just having Jesus Christ as my saviour, but living with Jesus Christ as my Lord. And this little passage here helps us with that. Just reflect for a moment on the words of Jesus. What are the very first words he speaks when he begins his ministry? He says there, and it's in bold, repent and believe the good news. Repent, literally a word to mean a change of mind, literally turning around. No longer living for self, but living with Christ at the centre. But then he says, repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? Well, we know from the very first verse of Mark's gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel about who? Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? It's Jesus Christ. What does Jesus mean? It means God saves. What does Christ mean? It means king. Jesus is my saviour, but he's also my lord. And it's interesting, in the, in the Bible, when we read the word believe, particularly here where Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, belief in the Bible is not just intellectual assent. Belief is also about action and response. And so belief in Christ does involve an accountability. It does involve a responsibility to helping each other grow. So when Jesus here says, repent and believe the good news, it's talking about our whole life now, no longer centering around us, but centering around Christ who is both our saviour, who rescues us by his wonderful grace and love, but he's also our Lord, who calls us to follow him. So to the second little phrase, what are the words that he speaks when he comes to those first disciples as they're fishing on this shore of Lake Galilee? Probably two of the most powerful words that have ever been uttered. Follow me. And they're words that really sum up what it means to live with Jesus, not just as our saviour, but also as our Lord. These words are utterly countercultural. Why? Because in the first century, a student chose their rabbi. 
their teacher, their rabbi did not choose them. But Jesus here comes and he calls people one by one and says, follow me. And we know from later on in Mark's gospel that that call to follow him is radical. He says, what does he say in chapter 8? If anyone would come after me, they must deny self, take up their cross and follow me. When he invites us to follow him, he's not inviting us to follow him to have a picnic. He's inviting us to pick up our cross and follow him. That's why conversion, coming to faith in Christ, isn't actually what's the most costly. It's being a disciple of Christ that is the most costly. And we know that there are many brothers and sisters around the world who will die for their faith because they've counted the cost. At the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the kingdom values that Neil's finished preaching through in Matthew 18 to 20, countercultural. And so as we come to a close, what I'd love to do is just to reflect on all that we've spoken of a number of times in different ways over recent months about membership, this idea of being committed to Christ and being committed to each other. And I'd love you just to look over the covenant that you have in your hand afresh. We're just going to give everybody a bit of space to be still. And I just want to ask you to reflect on two questions. Perhaps, first of all, you could just pick something in that covenant which is a commitment that you want to make to yourself before God to really help you in your growth as a Christian. That's the first thing. And secondly, I'd love you to pick something there which you would commit to, to helping another person grow in their walk with Christ. Something to help you and something to help somebody else. Why don't we just take a few moments of quiet and then Neil will come up and lead us in prayer. Let me read again the verses from Ephesians with which we opened our service. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we are aware that we live in a a culture which is very different from the one which you want us to live out. The values that you've given us to to live are different from the values that the the culture around us uh, uh, holds dear. So Lord, we do go from here asking that you would uh, fill us with your grace. You would strengthen us to live the way you want us to live. And Lord, we pray you would have put on our hearts something from uh, those different things we looked at this morning that um, you would help us to work on this week. We pray that we'll be praying these uh, for each one of us here that it wouldn't just be about our relationship with you, but the relationship of each one here with you, that we grow together as a church, that we're responsible for the growth of one another. And Lord, we look to that day when we will be called together, when we will come before you and bow our knees surrounding your throne. And we pray that on that day you'll be pleased with us, that you'll say to us, well done, my faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.